Thanks, Matt. Well, good evening. Welcome to you. I want to add my welcome to Ben. So great to have you amongst us as we look at this next part of God's Word and what it means to be male and female. Uh, no doubt there's going to be lots of questions tonight. I hope there's lots of questions. There's so much to cover. Um, so I'd love you to, to send in questions. Ben and I'll have a bit of question time afterwards. So send through your questions throughout this talk. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you get it answered partway through, you've already asked it, you can just text again and be like, cancel that. I'm all sweet on it now, so we, so we know. But, but feel free. We'd love to hear your questions. I want to start tonight with some statistics, because statistics are awesome. They say 88% of statistics are made up on the spot, like that one. Right? But statistics can tell us lots of things around the world. Here's some stats on the screen for you and some numbers to think through. $3,075 is being spent every second on pornography across the earth. Here's another one. 28,258 internet users are viewing pornography at this moment, apparently. 372 internet users are typing into adult search terms, into search engines right now. And in the time it's taken me to tell you these statistics... At least one new pornographic video has been made in the United States alone. The porn industry across the world brings in over $60 billion of revenue. If that were to be the amount of gross domestic product of a country, that would put it at uh, above two-thirds of all the countries on earth in terms of its gross domestic product output. Over 40% of people who use the internet view porn, 20% of men and 13% of women admit to using pornography at work. More than 70% of men from the ages of 18 to 34 um, visit a pornographic site in a typical month, and 90% of children between the ages of 8 to 16 have viewed pornography on the internet. It seems to me, as we look at the stats, that sex is on our brains. Society around us is drawn to something about male and female, maybe male and male, male and female, and what we think about our genders and our roles and this desire for one another. We have a fashion as humanity, a fascination as humanity, with our maleness and our femaleness. But let me ask you, what would you say it means to be male or female? How would you define what it is to be male or female? And what does God think about sex and sexuality? Tonight, as we open the book of Genesis together, we're going to see the foundation of this difference and how good it is and what these things mean for the way we interact with the world around us. So I want us to pray together and ask God tonight to help us to see His world through His eyes rather than our own. Let's pray together. Father, tonight as we have just heard Your Word read, as we have heard the creation of men and women and how we relate together, and as we think through what it means to be male and female, we confess that for so many of us, we come at this topic with all sorts of hurt and brokenness. From others, hurt and brokenness that we've caused ourselves, we ask that tonight as we, as we come to your word, we would hear it as your word, as the loving God who made us and who loves us and is, and is showing us the right way to live, the way that is best for us, we pray that by your spirit tonight, you would help us to see clearly as you do who we are, and what it is to live in your world as men and women. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as we've worked through the first few chapters, or chapter and a half of Genesis, we've been hearing over and over that God is the one who created. And He created the world to be good. 
God said it was good. God said it was good. God said it was good. And we get to humanity and God said it is very, very good. And then we get to something super surprising in verse 18 of chapter 2. Have a look at it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. We get to our first not good. Everything's been good this far. And and there's been no rebellion against God or anything like that at this point. But God can still say that in His creative efforts, there is something at this point in time that is not good. And what is it? (laughs) Well, God states what every woman has come to understand. It's never good for a guy to be left on his own. (laughs) It's never good. We come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. We do all sorts of crazy things. We want to eat a mountain or, I don't know, climb a river. We try and do all these crazy things. God has said it is not good for man to be alone. And every woman around goes, yeah, I've seen what happens. They go crazy. I used to think that the problem in Genesis 1 and 2 here was that Adam was lonely. It's not good for man to be alone. And you kind of go, yeah, because he's got no one to be with. It's totally lonely. Like he wants to go for long walks on the beach because he's a sensitive, literally new age guy. Like this is the first human, right? He wants to go for long walks on the beach and, and have someone to walk alongside. You know, and, and as he looks at all the other creation around, a horse wasn't good enough. There's something lonely going on here. But here's the thing. If loneliness is the, is the problem, then that means that relationship with God is not enough. Because Adam has perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. With God as Father, Son, and Spirit, He's been created in relationship with God. And if we're saying that the problem is loneliness, then we're saying relationship with our Creator is not enough. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth, could it? In fact, as you look through the Scriptures, you'll be hard-pressed to find loneliness as an emotion anywhere in this passage. And that gives us a bit of a warning as we come to the Bible. We always import our own views of life. We experience things in the world around us. We, we have emotions and we feel them and there are times that we feel lonely and we read this and you're like, oh, imagine being in the whole world the only person. It's like worse than the deserted island because there literally is no one coming. And we think, man, that would be so lonely. And we think of Tom Hanks in Castaway and we're like, that's how bad it's going to get. And you're thinking, this is horrible. And so we read our emotions into the Scriptures And we miss the fact that Adam has a relationship with God. And we miss some of the purpose for what this relationship between men and women is about. So what's the problem with Adam being alone? He needs a helper. He needs a helper. God had given Adam his purpose. Do you remember it? To to rule the earth in line with God's word and to fill it and see it flourish. But he couldn't do it on his own. I don't know what you're like with kind of housework. Um, we have a, a backyard that, that's about, um, about three meters square. It's not very big at all. And one of the things I hate about summer is how fast grass grows. It grows so quickly. You've got to cut it like every second weekend. I struggle to cut the backyard of our house regularly. It just kind of grows. I'm like, man, this is an issue. So much so I ended up paying someone to actually do it. It was like $15 every fortnight or something for them to come and cut this tiny bit of grass until our kids got old enough and now they do it. And that's part of what they've got to do, right? I struggle to look after three meters of our backyard. How could Adam look after the earth? Right? He's got the whole world to look after. Imagine all the grass cutting he would have to do. That's a lot. He's going to need a big machine to be able to do that. No, God has given Adam a purpose to rule the earth and subdue it, to rule it well under God's rule and to see it filled and flourish. 
and he can't do it on his own. What that tells us is that the goal of mankind is not to avoid loneliness. Don't believe that lie, whatever makes you happy, whatever is going to give you like happiness and companionship in life here and now. No, no, no. It's not to find our soulmate. That is not the goal or purpose that you were made for. The goal of life is to serve God and His purposes, to rule the world under Him, His way, and live rightly in it. That is where you'll flourish. That is where you'll find your full fulfillment as a human. The purpose of being human is to serve God. We've got to get that right. That's why God made us. And if we're not serving God, then we're not experiencing life in its fullness, as it was meant to be. So that brings us to the issue of what is it to be male and female? We read through the narrative that God has brought all the animals in existence and all the livestock before Adam. And Adam gets to name them all. And for every single one that comes before him, Adam's like, nope, nah, gnat, no, not suitable, but I'll call it a gnat. Camel, eh, not great, I'm going to call it a camel. All the animals come before him, but no suitable helper for the task of ruling and filling the earth was found for him. And so God makes woman. And I am so pleased he did. Can you imagine what the earth would smell like if it was just men? Bad is the answer. Bad. It would, it would reek. But God makes women. Now, sometimes, if I'm totally honest, I sometimes wish God could have made women a little bit less complicated. It would have been really helpful for me as you kind of relate. I think there's an amazing reality about women that, that you are brilliant and, and amazing and so different from us men in the way that you think. And that's something that's so good and you want to cherish and celebrate and struggle with if you're a guy to try and work out, I, I don't get it. All these times Sarah says, but what do you mean? I'm like, what I, what I said I mean. Like, it's just, it's just simple for me. I, I, I did a bit of research um, to look at what kind of scientific evidence there is to show the difference between the way men think and women think. Uh, and I found this fantastic diagram that kind of explains it really, really well. Here it is on the screen. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, we laugh because we recognize there are differences between men and women. And we recognize that. Sure, generalizations, but there are differences. But the world that we live in says, no, there's not. How dare you say that there are differences between men and women? There's just some biology, some bits in our bodies that are a little bit different. But, you know, you are who you want to be. If you think you're a man inside a woman's body or a woman inside a man's body, that's okay. Because what's the most important thing in your life is for you to be you. For you to define yourself based on who you think you are. You know, sometimes my kids think they're dogs, but they're not. We laugh because it's kind of ludicrous. It comes out of Freud's thinking. And the way that Freud just kind of said, you are, you kind of defined by your desires inside. You know, if I want to be a butterfly, I can't be a butterfly because I'm a human. It's just a reality. We're living in a world that's make-believe when we think we can define who we are like this. You know, the Greco-Roman world never did this. Um, same-sex marriage, uh, uh, sorry, same-sex same attraction and homosexuality has been a thing for such a long time. It's not new. 
What's new is that we think we are now defined by our sexuality. No one in the Roman or Greco-Roman world ever thought that they were a certain gender stereotype, that that was their identity. No, what they did together was an act, or that was with a male and a female, or a male and a male. But now we've gone, this is who I am. So let's come and have a look at who God says we are and the way God set us up to be and the differences that the Bible holds out between men and women. The first thing to say as we think about men and women is this. The Bible is very clear that male and female are created in the image of God. Both of us are fully man, fully human, equally human, equally valuable. That means men and women are equal. We need to drive this point home very clearly at the start. The Bible does not allow in any way, shape or form any difference in equality between male and female. Both fully human, 100%. Both equally valuable. Both fully imaging the creator of the universe as we seek to rule creation under God. We are equal. But the Bible then distinguishes some of the key differences between men and women. And we'll find that we are separated into two kinds. All too often we find ourselves or society pressuring us to iron out these differences, to say, look, it's just the same. There's no difference between you. But God's Word wants to celebrate the differences. To go, actually, there's something good about the way I've made you. It's interesting that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and we see that God within Himself is three persons, but the one God. There's, there's um, variety within the Godhead. We can't mush them all together and say, that is just God in His Godness, and then maybe we, we, there's three persons, one God. God made us in His image as male and female, as different, but to relate to one another. So, What does God's Word celebrate about the differences between male and female? I want to give you five observations, five points to write down here. Number one, that man, the male, Adam, was created first. It's just reality. It doesn't seem like a bit of a big deal to us, but it becomes important later on as we look at the role of men and women in the family, in the church. God says there's something important about Adam being made first, some sort of responsibility tied to that reality that he was the first. So number one, man was created first. Secondly, man was made from dust. Woman was not made from dust. Maybe that's why men smell more. don't know. Right? Adam was taken from the dust of the earth, and Eve was taken from Adam. And this is a really helpful kind of Hebrew play on words. You, you don't kind of get it as much in the English, but um, Adam is the name for the man. It says he was taken from Adamah, which is the Hebrew word for dust. And it's interesting, then it says, from Ish, man, was taken Ishah, woman. So you've got Adam, Adamah, Ish, Ishah. There's this kind of nice parallelism here that that God has set up man to be created from the dust, then woman to come from the man. She comes from him, and there's something important about that, that we can't say, oh, they're exactly the same. They're not. Thirdly, in verse 16, God gives his directions about how to live under his rule. He tells, um, he tells humanity how they are to live, what trees in, in, in the garden they are to eat from and what ones they are not. He gives those commands to the man. Adam 
was the only one around at that point. Eve didn't exist yet. Adam, therefore, is the one responsible when Eve comes on the scene to be able to lead, to be able to convey what has been said. It's interesting, we're going to see in the coming weeks as we get into the garden and the serpent says, you know, look at this tree, how good is it? And Eve then says, we must not eat or touch from any trees. She says that because Adam's told her, because Eve wasn't around when God said that. There was a sense here where God gave the command to Adam to lead humanity well. And when Eve is deceived by the snake, spoiler alert next week, who does God hold ultimately responsible? Eve ate first. Romans tells us that sin entered the world through the one man, Adam. There's something about being the leader of this new family unit that the man has responsibility for in a way that the woman, the wife, doesn't. She's not held accountable to the same level. Fourthly, thirdly, Adam is the one who's responsible. Fourthly, it's the man that's given the, the, the task of naming creation. He's the one who works out the names of all creation and the one who names the woman. There's a sense of difference there. The woman doesn't name Adam. Well, she might have some names for him. I don't know what they were. But anyway, but, but, but Adam is the one that calls her woman. Now, partially, I think it's because God knew in advance uh, that the English language would come along and it would work really well. When Adam saw this woman for the first time, he's been like, you know, camel, no, gnat, no, snake, no, none of these are good. God brings out woman. He's like, whoa, man. Whoa, man, woman? Anyway, thank you. Thankfully, I'm not here all week. Um, now, God has given Adam a level of not just responsibility in this, but authority. There's a level of authority that he has that, that Eve does not have. Now, we hear that word authority and we're like, ooh, that's bad. Authority is such a yuck word. This authority, who wants to have authority within a relationship or a marriage? It's like, ugh, it's so icky to us. Hold with me, we'll come through, because if that wasn't enough to get us frustrated, we hear the last point, that the woman was made as Adam's helper. Now, as we hear that word helper, there's a sense where, I don't know, I don't know what reaction goes on for you. Uh, for the guys, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, helpful, because I, I need help in lots of areas. Maybe that's good. There's another part of me that's like, helper, that feels a little bit disparaging, a little bit like, oh, you're just my helper on the site. For, for women, as I've chatted to women, it's kind of like, you what? What are you saying I am? Like, I'm, I'm here to help you. What about my life? What about what I'm, why am I here to help you? And there's a sense where we, we go, oh, this doesn't feel good. We thought authority was bad. Helper, how dare you do this? But the reality is, the reason God created Eve was to help Adam alongside Eve to rule over creation. To see God's creation looked after in line what God had said, with what God had said together, both of them, with Adam leading Eve together as they together were over creation. There's a goodness to that. Adam needed help in doing that. He also needed help in filling the earth. Because he can't do it on his own. It, it does not happen that way. Literally, you need a male and a female to see um, reproduction happen. And so along comes Eve as God creates her from Adam to rule creation, to fill creation in, in a fantastic picture where they're equally human 
and different in roles, but together celebrating the rule God has given them, ruling over creation perfectly with no, no brokenness, no dodginess, that all these things are good in the way God made it to be. Now, in our age and culture, we hear it and we're just like, ooh, this does not sound good. Have you ever wondered, why is that? Why does this sound so politically incorrect? Why do we get a bit angry about this? And, and kind of go, this is, this is not okay. Well, part of the reason I need to say is that because men have honestly have, have abused women and abused the privilege that they have had for so long, and we continue to do it. The men who've lorded it over women, who've, who've been abusive, who've, who've hurt their wives, who've hurt others, who, who haven't laid down their life for their wife, as God says to do in Ephesians 5, but have, have, have abused the authority and the responsibility and the giftings that God has given them. We respond that way because of the atrocities of brokenness, of the way of what we are like. I want to say, women, you have a right to shudder when we hear this because of the terrible ways men have taken God's word even at times and distorted it and twisted it to say, you will do what I say. I am the man, you are the woman. That is not what's going on here. But in Genesis 2, no distortion has happened. This is creation as God made it. This is how it ought to be. And so when we go, oh, this is wrong and we shouldn't be this way, we've got to not let our distortions of the way that we've seen the world around us come in and override the way God says, this is good. This is great. You know the word helper? In the Bible, it's not a derogatory term in any way. Do you know throughout the Bible that, that God is called the helper of Israel way more than a woman is ever called the helper of man? Now, if... If God is called Israel's helper, that can't make him in any way less than man, can it? No, a helper is his role, and someone's role, it's very different from that person's worth. So often we equate someone's role with someone's worth. Have you ever gone to a party and you're kind of like, oh, you know, you're at the party, you're chatting with people. One of the questions, I'll talk you through what happens for guys. Firstly, you know, you meet someone and you're like, oh, hey, yeah, my name's Roland, your name's, oh, yeah, cool. Then the next question guys generally ask is, what do you do or what are you studying? The reason we ask that question is we want to know where we fit compared to them on the social pecking order of who's more important. Because if you're studying something fancy and hard like medicine or law, right, then you're like, huh, I'm, I'm actually clever at this. Look at this. If you're a history student, you're like, huh, you're not even going to get a job. Like, what are you going to do? Or worse, like an art student, as in fine arts? I don't know many artists, but I have a fine arts degree, so you can hassle me later. But, um, but like, and, and what we do is we rank ourselves because we think that our roles kind of attach to our identity. One of the horrors of humanity is when we distinguish human value or worth based on roles. That's why we have human rights. In fact, it's very hard to find any other basis than the fact that humanity are created in the image of God and equally valuable for for the views of human rights than the Bible. (laughs) The idea that your boss or your lecturer, um, you know, is is more human than you as an employee or a student is, is crazy. You're like, no, that's not the case. The idea that a child is is less human than their parent. No, that's not right at all. Yet the parent has a role of authority over them. A police officer, right? They have a role of authority over me. They tell me what to do. And I need to obey that because of their role. But they're no more or no less a person than I am because I'm made in the image of God. 
what God is setting up here in Genesis is exactly this. Male and female are equal in value and identity and worth, yet different in the role that He's given us. And that is a good thing to be celebrated. The man and the woman are to lead together as they rule creation. We've got to get this perversion of the goodness of God out of our heads that we've experienced in the world around us. We've got to stop thinking about the dodgy leadership that we've seen in the world and that men have done and instead see the beauty and respect and service of true leadership. Do you know where we see that? We see it in another man who was never married, a man who walked the earth and showed what it is to be a leader. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's a kind of a negative connotation there. He says to his disciples, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus' name for himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the model of godly leadership laying down his life to serve others, to do for the good of others. That is what authority ought to do. It's the authority model that we see Jesus shows us and what it is to image the true and living God. The true leader who exercises authority, Jesus says, needs to be a servant. The leader of the universe laid down his life for us. The leaders of our country are supposed to be serving the country. The leaders of the community, the the police, are supposed to serve the community. Leaders of churches, the pastors here, are are to serve the congregation, to serve you as as under-shepherds of Christ as the great shepherd and us as ones who are sitting under him. Our, Our role as pastors is to point you to the reality of what God has said in his word. Not to tell you what you can and can't do, what sort of car you should buy and what sort of car you shouldn't, or whether you can leave church or not. Oh, sometimes I hear churches where the pastors are saying, you can and can't do this because we say it and we're the boss. I go, whoa, that's a cult. Now, the authority that pastors have in churches is to say, here is the Word of God, and let the Word of God be applied to our lives. We seek to serve those that are amongst us. And you know what? On the last day when Jesus comes back, Every pastor of this church and every other church will have to give an account of how we led and loved those in the congregations God entrusted us to. There's a responsibility, like Adam on that day that God turns up and says, who did this? And he fronts up to Eve. So the pastors of church will need to give an account for how we've loved you and laid our lives down for you and fed you the Word of God. It's an amazing privilege to serve and be sacrificial in this time. And, And most of the time in church, a great joy. Sometimes it's not, let's just be honest. Sometimes we have awkward conversations and we hate it. But it is a great joy to serve for God's glory, the people He's gathered together. I want to pause for a moment and just look to the side here on these roles of men and women and the differences that there are and just talk about leadership in the church for a moment. Uh, Here, and because of 1 Timothy 2, which we're going to look at in a couple of months as well, is the reason that at Auckland EV, men are the ones who are leading the church. Not because we think men are better. Men aren't better. Equal in God's sight. Men aren't better equipped to be able to handle the Word of God. Our one-switch brains doesn't make us better than the phenomenally complex reality of the amazing nature God has made women. No, 
we have men leading the church as pastors here and only men, in that sense, as they teach the Word of God, because that's the role God has given to men. Not to every man, but to those God has set aside to, to, to serve the church as elders and pastors of the church. 1 Timothy 2 is very clear. I do not permit women to teach or have authority over a man in this sense. God has given the responsibility, like in the family, to men in the church to have to stand on that last day before God and give an account for the way that we've loved and led. So it is with the leader of the family. Ephesians tells us that the husband is to lay down his life for the wife as Christ loved the church, as he laid his life down for her. So the husband's responsibility as he leads is to say, no, no, um, I want to lay my life down for you. I want to lay my preferences down for you so that, we, that I might serve you and do what Christ did for the church. Not die for you, but actually to, to deal with your sin, but actually to say, I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to look after you. He's responsible for the family to lovingly lead, as God calls the wife, to be able to respect and submit to the husband. That's her role. It's not his role to make her submit. If you've been part of a family or a, a relationship where, where the man or the woman is, a, is abusive in any way, that's not how God made it to be. The command is for the husband to lay down his life, not the wife to make him lay down his life. And the command is for the wife to submit to her husband, not the husband to make the wife submit. They're you know, things that God gives each party to do in and of their own accord. Ladies, if you're here tonight looking for a guy to marry... I want to say, look for a guy who is happy to lay down his life for the good of others. Look for a guy you can trust to keep growing in your walk with God, to walk alongside. A guy who, who won't see you as a commodity to be used for his own purposes, but a guy that will do everything in his power to, to see you presented perfect on that last day, to see people walk firm in Jesus. That's what you want to be looking for. And guys, the call to us is to be that person to be that person who takes God's Word seriously and, and seeks to love others and put others first. Whether we're married or not, our concern is serving the true and living God. Make that your purpose. Make that your plan. Now, as we think through those realities of what, mar what um, marriage and, and life looks like, all of us are going to fail. None of us are going to live life perfectly. But the way to keep going is to look to the one who did, Jesus. To recognize that he has come and he's paid the price for us and he, he's died in our place and he's offered us his life for ours. So as we fail, we can look to him and know that he is perfect. But before we move on to our next point of what marriage is, I, I want to spend a second on what the Bible doesn't say. Two things. The Bible does not say that guys need to do the work and women need to stay at home. The Bible does not say that. In fact, as you, as you read through the Bible, you come to Proverbs 31. The woman in Proverbs 31 is held up as like a model woman. She's like the bomb. She has awesome, uh, she's the kind of highlight of what we ought to ascribe to. And it looks like she is the chief provider. The husband does some non-paid legal or religious role in the community. And she, she does all the work in that instance. So the Bible is not saying, oh, you know, if you're a man, you have to go out and be the hunter-gatherer and be like, you know, a big buff-head caveman. And then like the woman is to stay at home waiting for it to come back, saying, oh, I'm going to cook it now. And like some kind of weirdness in that way. No. In fact, she's quite entrepreneurial as well. She's a seller and she's doing stuff. 
So God doesn't say the woman needs to stay at home and the guy needs to work. God also doesn't say that the woman's role is in the kitchen. See, when God speaks of his role as a father, he's not an absent worker who's always at work, never got time to nourish and lead his children. He's the one who's in the lives of his children, Israel. He's the one who's there teaching them and guiding them through and helping them through the prophets and seeing how they might be cared for and keep trusting in him. The language is one of nurture. And if a guy is always out going, I'm being the provider, I'm just dishing out the money and that's my job done, you've not read the Bible. And you've not really seen the way God treats his people, Israel. Again, sometimes we're in danger of taking our cultural stereotypes and and the ones of today or the ones of the past, and reading them back into the Bible, thinking, oh, this is the way God's Word says it. No, read what the Bible says. There's no doubt the Bible has lots to say about roles in marriage and family. We just need to make sure we don't say any more or any less than God does. Male and female are equal but different. So, that's male and female. What we want to look at next is marriage. Marriage. And again, I've got five points for you in marriage. Should be finished by about 9.30. Just kidding. <laughs> five points for marriage. It might be true. Depends on the question time. Um, number one, marriage is created by God. It's His pattern and plan. It's part of His pattern for humanity and the way that the social fabric of the world ought to work. And we know He's set it up that way because of Genesis 2.24. Let me put it on the screen for you. And I want to ask this question. What is odd about this verse. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Now, what's odd about that verse? Anything stand out for anyone? Sorry? Yes. Who can, can put your hand up if you know who Adam's mother was? Just quick, quick. Do you, but it's there, look. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. Who, who did Adam leave to be united to Eve? In his mother. None. Adam was created from dust and Eve from Adam. We've seen that very clearly. So why does Moses write this as he's pulling together this first account of what this is? He writes it that way because it's an institution he's setting up for the social fabric of all of humanity. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. As he's explaining the reality of male and female and the two becoming one, he says that the family unit is the marriage unit. Husband and wife. That's the way that God has made it. He's setting up a pattern for all creation. One, marriage is created by God, instituted by Him, and key and fundamental for all of humanity. See, if you don't know who someone's married to, then you're like, what? you can just go sleep with whoever you want, right? How do I know if they're single or not? Just ask Abraham how it worked out with Sarah. Not well. Not well when she pretended to be, well, he made her pretend to be his sister. One, it's created by God. Two, It's an exclusive relationship. One man, one woman, no one else. (laughs) Now, as a side note, as you look through the Old Testament, polygamy is practiced by people in the Bible. People having multiple wives. And what we see, though, and we're going to see this in a couple of weeks' time, that whenever polygamy pops its head up in the Bible, it pretty much always turns out badly. You want to have multiple spouses? It's not going to work well. Let me assure you, I've been married for 21 years, right? Having more than one spouse is next to impossible. I can't imagine that. Having, Sarah having one spouse to deal with is enough. Imagine having two. 
How do you deal with that? No, God made us that marriage should be one man and one woman. But we do need to recognize it's not until the New Testament comes that it, that it condemns polygamy in that sense. So marriage, we see, is that it is exclusive, set apart by God. It's exclusive, one man, one woman. Number three, marriage is publicly enacted and recognized. Marriage needs to be public. You are to leave the, the, the old family unit and become part of this new family. It can't be undercover. Nearly every culture in the world has a way of publicly recognizing marriage. Right? Most Western cultures do it by signing a piece of paper, a publicly available piece of paper. The person that comes along and says, oh, look, we, we were married, we just didn't tell anyone about it. Well, that's great. How is like Joe Bloggs over here going to know that you're married? He's been like thinking about courting your wife, but you're actually married. It needs to be public because otherwise society goes to custard. It's like, who do you belong to? Where do you fit? You just become individuals bumping around rather than this family unit. God wants it to be public so the world might see that reality. So it's publicly enacted and recognized. Fourthly, it's permanent. Marriage is permanent. That's what Adam means when he sees Eve and says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, here is one that is like me and will be with me for life. In Genesis 29, um, we hear that same phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh used. Um, it says this literally, Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Literally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh you are. To be bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is to be my family. That's what he's saying at this point. Just like a brother is always a brother, so no matter how far you fall out with one another, you are still brothers. So marriage is the creation of a permanent family. That's why Jesus speaks so strongly against divorce and remarriage in the New Testament. Because marriage is intended for life. New Testament only gives two reasons for breaking that for life reality, which is sexual immorality, and then because one of them partners becomes a Christian and therefore leaves because the other, well, the other one doesn't want to be with a Christian anymore, and so it's desertion. And the only two biblical reasons that I can see for divorce and remarriage, separation, absolutely. There's a time and a place to separate, uh, to remove yourself from all sorts of abuses that happen, all the wrong parts of, 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 of relationships that can come up, absolutely. But God designed marriage to be permanent. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And fifthly, finally, in this bit, marriage is designed for mutual support and encouragement so you might serve God. Marriage is sex in the service of God. The reason you're married is to serve God and to, to fulfill God's purpose to rule over creation. Now, we get married for so many reasons today, you know, it's because I love this person, because it's convenient, because I can get a visa. There's so many reasons, you know, <laughs> that people can get married, right? But God's primary motivation for marriage, ready, has nothing to do with you and me. It's not to do with our kind of happiness and pleasure. All those things come from it. Yes, His primary motivation is to rule and fill the earth. It's to serve Him and live rightly, which includes enjoying that relationship. Oh, it's not just like, you know, move on with it. You know, this is horrible, but I'll put up with it anyway. It, children are a key part of that filling the earth. And sex is a key part of that, but it is, it is so you might serve God and honor Him and live His way. God created us to be dependent on one another in the way that we're to do that as well. Complementary. 
Do you know the only human system that needs another system outside of itself to function is the reproductive system? Every other system in our body can operate on its own. It doesn't need another party to come along. But our reproductive system needs someone else. God made us that way for a number of reasons. But so we might recognize we can't do it on our own. Literally. We, we need one another. And, and sex then is, is given to marriage as more than just to procreate. It's more than just to produce children. The Catholic Church kind of says, look, sex is only for children and that's it. Uh, no contraception, just, just have sex, have as many kids as you can, and then that's it. When you can't do that anymore, that's it. It's kind of like very cold and bland. But as you come and you read the Bible, you get to books like um, the Song of Solomon. As you read Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, I can't see really anything else that contributes to our knowledge of God other than to rejoice in the relationship between a husband and wife. The whole book is there to show this amazing relationship between a husband and wife and the way he speaks of her and loves her and lays his life down for her and talks of her nose like trees of Lebanon and kind of other offensive things that you wouldn't say today, but culturally you understand they're really good, you know? (laughs) It's to be enjoyed. They're to enjoy one another and they're gifts to one another. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about that our bodies are not our own if we're married, that they belong to another. And so we are to give ourselves to the other as we seek to serve God. So then let's hone in for a moment on sex and sexuality. I've got to spend a moment here to think through what, what is sex and how does the Bible speak about it? Firstly, you've got to go, the Bible says sex is great. God invented it for our good within marriage. It's kind of like the glue that holds a couple together, this, this new unit becoming one. The two kind of stuck together. And that happens through sex and by continuing to have sex together. That's what it means to be one flesh. It's the couple saying, we're joined together in, in a special sort of way that, that no one else is. That we're this new family unit. And that's why sex is for marriage and only for marriage. Because that's how God made us to be. It's not about our enjoyment in and of itself. It's about making the family unit stick together as we, as we under God, fill the earth and rule the earth well. The two of them, as they come together, have no shame. There's no need to cover up, nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of, but a giving of oneself to God and therefore to to one another. Sex is great, and God has designed it to be that way within marriage. Outside of marriage, it does all sorts of damage. See, it's meant to, to glue us together, and every time you pull it together with someone else and stick it to someone else and stick it to someone else, it just, it just loses its stickiness. It's not the way that we're created to be. God made us for sex within marriage. That said, marriages should be full of good sex. When I was at uni, um, my last year of uni, uh, Sarah, Sarah and I, we, we met pretty early. Uh, we got married, I was 20 uh, almost 21, so pretty young um, to get married. Uh, I was married in my last year of uni. So I'm going to uni. I had a year and a half of uni left. And one of the things I can remember was this um, friends sitting in a car. They might have, anyway, oh, there's too much information there. Stop for on. Like, whoa, pull back. Anyway, they were smoking stuff they shouldn't have been. There we go. And, um, and they were chatting about, like, why, why do you get married so young? Why are you doing this at this point? 
I'm like, well, I actually think it's the way that God made us to be. I think it's the best way. Like, oh, we just want to like, you know, try before we buy. We want to sleep around a bit and see what it's like and see what we like in a marriage partner. And we think that's the best sort of life. Why would, why would you kind of commit yourself to one person? And that moment, kind of God gave me a, a bit of a, I said something that I thought was helpful. I was like, you know what? Because your view of sex sucks. Like every time you have sex with someone, it's a new person. It's the first time. You're not going to be able to do it well. Sex takes practice. I get to be with the same person for the rest of my life, and it's only going to get better. You're doing it for the first time with every single person. Of course your sex is going to suck. You should try the Christian way. Way better. That's how God made us to be. And they're like, whoa, there's a Christian talking about sex, that it's good? And then they kind of went, you're a bit weird, and then went back to smoking. So that, that, was, that was the conversation. But that said, marriage is not always brilliant. Uh, Many of us will know that. Many of us have been through those moments. The result of the fall is that sometimes marriage is hard. It's hard work. Two sinners living in the same house. I I reckon it took Sarah and I at least seven years to be able to work stuff out together, and maybe even 15 years before we've started to have good arguments. I mean, we're slow learners. Um, But it just takes time, and we still don't do it well. We still fail and stumble. Sometimes it's hard because of our own volition. We walk places we shouldn't walk. Sometimes sex doesn't work as the way that we think it would. And within marriage even, there's all sorts of brokenness and pasts that come up. And it's hard. When we come along, though, and try and live in God's world in ways that are against the way He made us with sex, when we sleep with those that we're not married to, when we glue relationships that never have commitment to one another... It's no wonder that the world is just so broken and hard. Each time we do that, we're, we're missing out on what God has for us and we're doing damage to someone else. If you want to destroy your marriage, whether that be in the future or presently, just sleep with someone who isn't your spouse. It really, it goes to our core. Sexual sin really shapes us in so many ways. There's something so core and central about it. Now, for many of us... You know, we cross the line and, and we hear going, man, does that mean I'm stuffed? No, it doesn't mean you're stuffed. There's great hope in the gospel of knowing that Jesus forgives and that he gives us a fresh start. And that every marriage is not perfect. But where you're sitting today, don't go, oh, it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. I just want to be happy. The creator of the universe has said, I created sex to be used within marriage. And that is the way that's good. And to do it any other way is like a two-year-old climbing into a wrecking ball machine. You ever seen those wrecking ball machines, those massive kind of cranes with a ball on the end? And when we go, look, I want to do it my way, we act like two-year-olds. We climb into the wrecking ball machine and go, this is fun, I love it. And we just start swinging around and like smashing buildings over and be like, yeah. And then later on we worked out, we just wrecked a whole lot of stuff. That's what it's like when we pretend to be God. So I want to encourage you today to think through, where are you at with your sexuality? Where are you at with the way that you are living that out? Are there things you need to stop doing? Are there things that you need to start doing? Barriers that you need to put in place? Who are you fooling around with that is not yet your spouse? Whether they be people, pixels, or pages. Whether they be novels that we're reading and kind of letting our minds go on with. Who are we spending more time with than we ought? Thinking about in ways that we shouldn't. You know where they are. They're all there for all of us. We all struggle, myself included. Who have you told about that? Who have you asked, hey, can you, can you pray for me in this? I really struggle in this area. Can you help me keep accountable in this area? Look to the way God has made you and see its goodness and trust Him. What 
novels are you reading? What Netflix shows are you watching? What news feeds are you looking at? Because, well, it's nice to look at. A number of years ago, I was at a conference and a speaker was talking through the power of sexual sin. And he said, sexual sin is kind of like a tiger. I don't know, has anyone ever come face to face with a tiger without glass in between you? Yeah, generally those people are dead, right? Because tigers are phenomenally powerful animals. And he was saying, sexual sin is like that. If you think you can go around in in a cage with a tiger uh, without any other gun or anything else, you're dreaming. Like it will devalue. And sexual sin is like that. If we think, I'm fine, I can, I can play around with this, it'll be fine. It will devalue you. But he said this next line, and it's been so helpful for me throughout my whole life. He said, but if you starve the tiger, if you don't feed it, if you don't look at images, if you don't go, yeah, I'm going to dwell on this thought, if you actually starve the tiger, then it shrinks down to being like a weak kitten. And that we can say no to. That line has been so helpful for me. Every time something flashes up on my screen, the line comes in my head, starve the tiger, Rowan. If I feed this thing, it will devour me, and I know that for sure. Don't go there, run. Can I encourage you, starve the tiger. Starve the tiger of thinking that marriage is the be-all and end-all, that your life will be fulfilled if you're just married. Or starve the tiger of the idea that, oh, I wish I had a better spouse. Or starve the tiger of the idea that I want to look at more images and, and enjoy this, this relationship I can have. Starve the tiger. Starve the tiger when you're tempted to be like, oh, it's okay. You know, we'll just sleep in the same house together. We're not actually kind of going to do anything. Or we'll just sleep in the same bed together. I hear so many couples that are going, oh, it's okay to sleep together, like in the same house before we're married. I'm like, are you an idiot? Like, seriously? Like, do you have like iron underpants or something? Like, God designed you to want to be glued to one another, and you're going, ah, oh, it's cool. We'll be able to do that. I'm like, man, are you Superman? Like, sometimes we so highly value our self-control when really we know what we're doing. We're pushing the line, starve the tiger, don't do it. Don't do it. Trust what Jesus has done and how God has set up His world. The thing I want to end with tonight is a promise that the Scriptures give us. The promise the Scriptures give us is that if you trust in Jesus, if you do trust in Jesus, then God promises that each and every one of you will be married. If you trust in Jesus, God promises that each and every one of you will be married. Let me show you where. When Jesus comes back, there will only be one marriage. The marriage of Him and the church. For those who trust in Jesus, trust that He's died in your place, that He's forgiven your sins and your brokenness, there's a new relationship we have to look forward to that we're kind of in now and we'll be fully in when He returns. Perfect relationship with God and us, with Jesus and us. We will know God when He returns, when Jesus returns, better than any husband has ever known their wife on this earth. We'll experience relationship with God and with one another in a better, more intimate, closer, better way than we could ever imagine. So while you want to work on marriage and relationships, and they're super important, yes, remember this marriage on this earth is momentary. But the marriage Jesus promises lasts forever. Come with me to Revelation 19 verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of the vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is the moment Jesus comes back. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. If you trust in Jesus, that is our future. That is the reality of what we will be spending an eternity doing, being united to Christ. Don't think that if I'm not married here on earth, I'm going to miss out. If I haven't had sex here on earth, I'm missing out. You know, the most fulfilled person to ever walk the earth was a virgin. Never had sex and was never married. His name was Jesus. And we get to spend an eternity with him. So tonight, as you come here, as you think about who you are as a, as a man or a woman, as you're tempted to take on the views of the world around us, I want to challenge you. If, if you're just feeling tired, tired of relationships breaking, tired of marriages you might be in, tired of family and, and the tension that is there, tired of yourself and the way you keep on sinning, if you're tired of the battle, tired of pretending or of hurting or of pain or feeling unsatisfied, tired of bad leaders and past memories and unfaithful friends and family, tired of a world so fixated on gender and its perversions of it that you just want to give up, I want to encourage you tonight, look to Jesus, the one who's come and lived the perfect life in your place, and trust him. Take him at his word and live serving him for his glory. That is where life to the full is found. Fulfillment as a man and as a woman isn't found in singleness or marriage. It's found on looking at the one we're united with and pointing people to him as our role now changes to rule the earth by pointing to our ruler. As Jesus came, he came as the true and living God who will rule forever. Our role now is to point to the perfect Adam. So won't you do that with your sexuality, with your gender, with your life. Enjoy living for the true and living God and look forward to the day he comes back and we enter into that marriage completely and fully with him. That's what I long for. Why don't you join with me as we pray that we'd ask our great God to help us live for him. Lord God, tonight as we come and hear you speak in your word. There are so many ways that we feel like we fall short. Times that we haven't lived the way that we ought. Times we've experienced the brokenness of, of others toward us, of ourselves toward others. Father, as many of us experience the pain of relationships or not being in a relationship or being in a relationship, we ask that you would focus our eyes on your son the perfect Adam who lived rightly and who rules creation now at your right hand in heaven and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Help us, Lord, whether we are single or married, to live for you and make that our prime purpose. Would you help the marriages in this church, Lord, to honor you and, and to point to Jesus in all that they are about? And would you forgive us for the times that we don't treat you as we ought? Father, tonight we are so thankful that as you look at us, you don't see our failings but you see your son who has lived perfectly in our place. So help us, Lord, to live for you, longing for that day Jesus comes back and to be made more and more like you, starving the tiger each and every day that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. 
We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.